we have spent over these last few months some time in a series of messages together called Regalia, the rise of the kingdom. Regalia has to do with all that pertains to the king and his kingdom. And we've been learning through the rise of King David's leadership all the parallels between that of Christ Jesus and the kingdom he's coming to reign over forever and ever. When you get to chapter 24, it doesn't start out very well. David is incited to sin against God. He goes out to count his troops. We'll find out why that was a bad deal after God told him not to do it. And he realizes his guilt. He cries out to God for forgiveness. And as David was about to learn, there is no forgiveness without a cost. There is no forgiveness without a sacrifice. And so David, what starts out poorly in 2 Samuel 24 ends with a great message of hope for you and me and all of us this Christmas season. This is why Jesus came. Here's how it records for us in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord turned, or excuse me, burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aurora, south of the town in the gorge. And they went through Gad and on to Jazir. And they went to Gilead and the region of Tatim Hodshi, and on to Dan, Jaon, and around toward Sidon. And then they went toward the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. God, all of us can relate to David. We too have sinned and at times done very foolish things. And we, like him, have cried out for the forgiveness of our guilt. And we have been reminded that there is no forgiveness without a sacrifice. Jesus, this is why you came, to glorify God and to redeem man, to be our king and our priest and our sacrifice. And I pray today as we open up this word in this Sunday before Christmas, we'll have an even greater and deeper appreciation for why you've come the first time and why you're coming again as king. There is an altar for the sacrifice, the king's altar. And there is where we find our forgiveness. And we thank you, God, for this reminder in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas is a crazy time. Carl and I were talking this morning about a lady we read about who uh, was nearing Christmas Day and she suddenly realized, I forgot to send out any cards. I didn't even buy them. So she raced to the store. You know what's happening a couple days before Christmas. 
Uh, everything's picked over. She was just hoping to find a couple of boxes that were good or cute or looked the same. And she found these adorable little cards, two boxes of them. She grabbed them, paid for them, went home, filled them out, signed them, stuck a label on them, and quickly got them in the mail. Next day, she was relaxing, and she noticed that she had a couple cards left in the box. And she thought, oh, I'll see what I said to all these people. So she opened up the Christmas card. This is what it said. This little card is on its this little card is here to say that your Christmas gift is on its way. <laughs> you think you have pressure. Christmas time can be a time full of pressure. But in the midst of it all, we have to hold on to the meaning of what it's all about. We hear it all the time. Christmas is the time we remember and celebrate the miracle of God becoming a man. God became a man. He came in human flesh, born to a bewildered couple in a stable out behind an inn in the little town of Bethlehem. He was born in a manger, but the manger has always stood in the shadow of the cross. Jesus came to reveal God, but he also came to redeem man. And there would be a cost because mankind's greatest need was a king and a priest and a perfect sacrifice. Because man's greatest need is forgiveness. And not just forgiveness in general. We need forgiveness from God. And in Jesus, God meets that need. Jesus is the king who intercedes as a priest for us with God and offers the perfect sacrifice. Such is the person of Jesus, but also all of that foreshadowed in the person of David. You see, today we conclude our series in 1 and 2 Samuel, Regalia, the rise of the kingdom. And we've been learning about all the ways God established the kingdom of David as a foreshadowing of giving rise to the kingdom of Jesus Christ that would be forever. David was chosen by God to be his anointed king and established the line through which the descendants would come leading to ultimate King Jesus. In this series, we have seen about the glory of the king. We have seen the difference between the king that man chooses and the king that God chooses. We've learned about the heart of the king, how God developed the king's leadership, his character, and established his reign. We've learned about the covenant of the king, how God came to David and promised him that through his line would come an ultimate king to sit on his throne whose reign would be forever and ever. We saw the rebellion against the king, and now the king had to go away for a season. But the king returned. And he sat on his throne to reign in grace and truth and justice and righteousness. Today, in the book of 2 Samuel, it closes with David as king, interceding as a priest and offering himself as a sacrifice to save the people from his sin. God was angry with Israel. It doesn't tell us why. But it says that he incited David to take a numbering of his troops. When you read the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 21, you learn that it wasn't actually God who incited him. It was Satan who did it. God uses in his sovereignty both good and evil. He can use Satan or anyone else to accomplish his purpose. And by David being incited to go out and number the troops, as sinful as it was, David gave in to that, and God would now work sovereignly to use that to bring about an ultimate good. God told David that his strength was to be in God, not his troops. But at this stage of David's life, he found more comfort, more security, more pride, more strength in the size of his army. 
And so he tells his leading general, Joab, and the other commanders, I want you to go out and count the men so I know how many I've got to fight these wars. They're our strength. The number came back, 1.3 million. And God was impugned by that. You see, God had told David, your strength is not in the size of your army. Your strength is in me. You don't need to worry about how big your army is. You just trust in me. It wasn't the size of your army that's delivered you all these times. It was me. So you don't need to be counting them. But David did it anyway in pride and rebellion. And it tells us in verse 10, David was conscience stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Take away the guilt of your servant. Forgive me, God. I was wrong. I was foolish. But there would be no forgiveness without a sacrifice. So God speaks to David's prophet Gad and sends him to David with these choices. And God, through Gad, says to David, you have three choices, none of them good. They all involve death because the wages of sin is death. So do you want three years of death by famine, three months of death by your enemy's sword, or do you want three days of, of death by plague? And David responds in verse 14. I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. The king, interceding like a priest and offering himself as the sacrifice. The very same thing that Jesus would do. So David buys the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite because God says, David, you will not be the sacrifice, but you will build an altar for my sacrifice. And so David builds an altar on that site and he offers sacrifices for sin. And the book closes with these words. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. God judging sin, humanity facing the penalty of death, God intervening and providing a sacrifice to die in David's place on an altar that God would establish to bring forgiveness for the people. And Samuel reminds us, as with King David, God would also provide a sacrificial altar for King Jesus. Why was there a need for a sacrificial altar? Because there is no forgiveness without a sacrifice. Samuel recorded in verse 18, on that day, 
Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arunah looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arunah said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Arunah said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering and here are the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arunah gives all this to the king. Arunah also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arunah, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. There is no forgiveness without the payment of a debt. Joshua Ryan Butler wrote a book, The Pursuing God. And in that book, he asked the question, why can't God just forgive the debt of sin? If our creator was truly generous, couldn't he just move on without repayment? Live and let live? Well, here's the problem. Someone always eats the cost of sin, for example. Let's say your neighbor crashes his car through your new fence. When you discover the shambles, you forgive him. Don't worry about the fence, you say. All is forgiven. But forgiveness doesn't repair the fence. So, you eat the cost for that forgiveness. Now, consider a more complex example. During the U.S. housing crisis some years ago, shoddy banking practices corporate corruption threw a sledgehammer into the global economy. He went on to say, now imagine Jesus is installed in the aftermath as the new CEO of one of the massive corporations guilty for the crisis. The old CEO is out the door, a new boss is in town. Jesus is personally innocent, he's perfect. He wasn't behind the wheel when the ship got steered into the rocks. But there's still a huge debt that has to be paid. No matter who's at the helm. Bank of America alone owed people $17 billion. Someone has to pay the costs. Here's what actually happened. In the aftermath of the housing crisis, the banks were deemed too big to fail, and the government forgave the debt, covering the most expensive bailout in human history. Though the banking industry had caused massive damage, the debt was forgiven. But the debt didn't go away. Someone else had to pay it. In this case, it was the American people. Someone always eats the cost for forgiveness. And Butler went on to say at the cross, God was eating the cost of our sin. Why can't God just forgive the debt? Well, this is what was happening at the cross. God is justly forgiving the debt by personally covering the cost. He said, I misspoke earlier when I said the White House gave Wall Street the most expensive bailout in human history. Actually, the most expensive bailout was when the father established his incarnate son as the new CEO of a corrupt corporation called Humanity Incorporated. And together, in the power of their spirit, they took upon themselves the most outrageous debt forgiveness plan the world has ever known. Sin has a debt. 
The wages of sin is death. God can forgive the sin, but the debt has to be paid. Sin has a cost. It's death. So we pay it, or God pays it. That's why David's sin brought death, no matter which option for punishment he chose, because the wages of sin is death. And David recognized his sin of pride and disobedience, of of impugning God and relying on his own strength rather than God's word, and he cried out to God for forgiveness. So God gave him those three options. And David said, I can't pick. Just let me fall on the mercy of God and not the hands of men. So God sends a plague among the people. 70,000 of the people die in three days. You know that phrase that Samuel uses, 70,000 of the people, is a phrase that could mean 70,000 of the people that were counted. If that's true, then meaning God is saying to David, look, you put your hope and your strength in the size of your army? In three days, I'm going to reduce that army by 70,000 men because your hope is not in your army. Your hope is in me. Sin has a price. If there is to be forgiveness, someone has to die. The debt has to be paid. So watch what happens next in verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And you read in verse 17, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. David is the king, interceding as a priest and offering himself as the sacrifice. Exactly what Jesus would one day do. Jesus the king, interceding as our priest and offering himself on an altar of a cross as our sacrifice. But God intervenes and saves David, telling him you will not be the sacrifice, but you will establish an altar on which the sacrifices to make atonement for your sin will be made. And when the angel of the Lord put his sword back in its sheath, He was on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. The Jebusites were conquered people. They lived in the area of Jerusalem. And when David came and conquered that city, that region, he established the city of David there and drove the Jebusites out. Aruna may have been one of their former kings, but he had a threshing floor on a hill just north of the city of David on the eastern part of town, outside the city. It was a flat level place on a hill where the wind could easily come and as he shifted the wheat, it would blow the chaff away. It was the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. This threshing floor was on a hill, the hill that the ancients used to call Mount Moriah. It was the same hill that Abraham once climbed with his only son Isaac to sacrifice his son on an altar that God said to build on that mountain. But when Abraham raised the knife, you remember? God intervened and stopped him 
Just like the angel who raised his sword over Jerusalem on that same site, God intervened and stopped him and said, enough. God would provide the sacrifice. God provided a substitute to save Isaac. God would provide a substitute to save David. And God has provided a substitute to save you and me. So God tells David, build an altar and sacrifice on the very spot God told Abraham to do the same. So David buys the threshing floor of Aruna. He refuses to take it free, for he said, I will not offer sacrifices that cost me nothing. So on that altar, David offers up burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. There are five Old Testament offerings. They all point to Jesus. The sacrifice, God wanted the sacrifice to be lifted up on an altar, on a hill, outside the city. Jesus would one day be lifted up as our sacrifice on the altar of a cross on a hill outside the city. Jesus would be our burnt offering. In a burnt offering, the sin bearer, the animal, was not dying for a specific sin, but for all the sins resulting from those who are not fully wholly devoted to God. So they would take the animal and prepare it. They would place it on the altar and it would completely be burned. It would completely be given over to God. And when that burnt offering was presented like that, the person presenting the animal was saying, as this sacrifice is wholly given to you, God, so now through this sacrifice, my life is wholly devoted to you. I'm holding nothing back. Jesus is our burnt offering. He was wholly devoted to God, completely given over to God, holding nothing back. When you and I become Christians, when we ask this Jesus to come into our life, he is our burnt offering. We are coming through Jesus as our burnt offering to say, God, through this offering, I now receive Christ and he is my burnt offering. Now I am wholly devoted to you. I'm holding nothing back. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to accept Christ as your burnt offering sacrifice. But Jesus would also be the fellowship offering, also called a peace offering, established to create peace or fellowship in three spheres, peace with God, peace with others, and peace within. Peace comes from the knowledge of knowing that you've been forgiven, that you are at peace with God, David offered a fellowship offering acknowledging that through this sacrifice, his sin was forgiven, the barrier is removed, and he is now at peace with God and his fellow man. David had caused the death of these people. Jesus is our fellowship offering. By his sacrifice, our sin is forgiven, and we are at peace with God. That's why Paul, the great sinner, the chief of sinners, he said, wrote to the Romans in Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why John would later write about fellowship with God and what it looks like. 
wholly devoted to God, but if you're living in fellowship with God, then it translates to how you live with your fellow man. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, John wrote this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You see that? God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to be living in fellowship with God, in other words, we have accepted Jesus as our fellowship offering to make peace between us and God. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for him who died for us and who rose again. And so John said, when you accept this fellowship offering of Jesus at the cross, when you invite Christ to come and live in your life, what you're saying is I'm living in fellowship with the God who is light, so in me there can be no darkness. I can't say I'm following Jesus and living in sin intentionally. He said, if you claim that, you're lying. When you accept Christ into your life, he is your fellowship offering. It makes peace with God and peace with man. So this site, Aruna's threshing floor, will become even more significant than David could have imagined. For it tells us in the parallel passage to this in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 1, after seeing all this, David said, the house of the Lord God is to be here and also the altar of burnt offering for Israel. This is where the temple would be sited. So David began to make plans for the temple his son Solomon would build. It was on this temple site that Jesus would do so much of his teaching. When that temple was constructed, God came to dwell in that temple in the Holy of Holies. The fullness of God's glory dwelt with man. This is where people could come to meet God. When Jesus lived out his ministry on earth, he said he was the temple of God. The fullness of God dwelt in him. He was God in human flesh. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. And so in Jesus was the temple where people could meet with God. Someday Jesus is going to return. He's going to take his seat in a rebuilt temple. But until that time, where is the temple of God today? Where is the place people meet with God because he dwells in that temple? It's you and me, the temple of God. We are the temple of God corporately and individually. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. You see, when you become a Christian, you become part of a body. It's called the church. It's the body of Christ. Christ is seated at the right hand of God, but he's living by his spirit in his body on earth. 
We are the visible presence of Jesus in the world. We are his temple, his church. It's through our lives that people can still encounter God. They can see his glory. They can meet with God and hear the good news and know how they can have peace with God. We together as his church are the temple of God. But it isn't just the church corporately. Each of us individually is God's temple. Our bodies are a temple of God, his Holy Spirit. Paul went on to say in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Jesus lives in me. If you're a Christian today, Jesus is living in you. This body doesn't belong to me anymore. I'm going to carry this around until God is done with it. Your body doesn't belong to you either if you're a Christian. Jesus is living in your body to take you where he wants to go, to do what he wants you to do, to say what he wants you to say, to be what he wants you to be. Wherever you are, you're his temple. This is where people meet God when they meet us. So if we individually and corporately are God's temple, his altar, then what are the sacrifices we offer? Well, first of all, we offer these bodies, our very lives, like a burnt offering, wholly devoted to God. Paul said in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, we offer our lives up to God as a whole burnt offering. We're holding nothing back. But we offer up our lives for God's praise and to live for the good of others like a fellowship offering to God. Hebrews 13, verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So you see, we live our lives like a fellowship offering. I'm living at peace with God. And that fruit of that peace is on our lips. We're telling people how they can have peace with God. And by the way we treat them and the way we respect them and the way we live among them, we're demonstrating that we are at peace with God and they too can be at peace with God. And God said that kind of sacrifice, living like that, is pleasing to him. It's an acceptable sacrifice. There is a cost for forgiveness. The debt has to be paid. David paid it. When Aruna offered the oxen and the threshing sledges and the yoke for the wood, everything he needed to prepare and give the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, David said no. I will not offer to God a sacrifice that costs me nothing. So David paid. Jesus paid it. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, 
Beginning in verse 24, Christ didn't enter a sanctuary made with human hands. There was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that's not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus paid it all. That's why the writer of Hebrews went on to say, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. People, are you excitedly, expectantly waiting for the return of our King Jesus Christ? The one who is our Savior. He's coming again. This is why Jesus came the first time. Christmas is the celebration that the one who would be our king, our priest, and our sacrifice has come. This is why God spoke to Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6. To us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is why the angel came and told Mary in Luke 1, verse 30, Mary, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son. You're to call him Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the son of the most high. Look at this. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This is why the angel came to Joseph when he found out Mary's having a baby and it wasn't by me and she said God did it. A little tough to swallow. So he's deciding, I'm going to put her away quietly. God appears to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son. You're going to give him the name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. You're going to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is why the angels sang the way they did the night Jesus was born to a group of terrified shepherds on a hillside outside Bethlehem. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Our great sacrifice, Jesus. Our whole devoted burnt offering, our fellowship and our peace with God. You know, about 30 years ago, I think it was, I got a Christmas card the front of it had a message that every year about this time I try to read to remind myself of what this season is about and how much I have to be thankful for. 
no matter what circumstances may be going on in my life. I've kept this card all these years because it is a precious reminder to me of who Jesus really is and why he came. It simply said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was for forgiveness. And so God sent us a savior. A savior who is our sacrifice. People, do you know this Jesus today? Sincerely, do you know him? Not just about him. Do you know him? Because you see, there is no forgiveness without a sacrifice. And it can't be any sacrifice. There's only one. There aren't many options for your sin to be forgiven. There aren't many options for eternal life. You go to your local Starbucks, you have a lot of options. I don't go to Starbucks much. In fact, I've only been there two or three times. I don't really drink coffee. My mother-in-law drinks enough for our entire family. In fact, she probably drinks enough for all of you. That's why she's 97 and keeps going. Um, I was in a Starbucks. Interestingly enough, I went in there at that time uh, to get my mother-in-law a cup of coffee. (laughs) Now, I wasn't prepared for what was up on the board. It was overwhelming, words and terminology and stuff. I have no idea what it is. I still don't. So I said to the guy, I I just want to get like a cup of coffee. He said, a what? I said, just a plain cup of coffee. See, apparently they have a name for that too. I can't remember what it is, but they they have a name for it. If you know the code, he knows right away what you're supposed to get. But we finally figured it out, and he got me a plain cup of black coffee, which is probably the only one he's sold in the last 10 years. But anyway, I was reading this article by Brian Kohout uh, from North Carolina. He apparently goes to Starbucks quite a bit. Um, This is what he said. You walk into Starbucks, you got lots of options. Boy, that's true. He said you could start by ordering a tall, non-fat latte with caramel drizzle. Or a grande iced sugar-free vanilla latte with soy milk. Or how about a decaf soy latte with an extra shot in cream? Or a non-fat frappuccino with extra whipped cream and chocolate sauce? But don't forget the venti iced skinny hazelnut macchiato sugar-free syrup extra shot light ice no whip. I, I'm serious. I have no idea. what I know what whipped cream is, but I don't, I don't know what the rest of that is. Wow. According to Starbucks global chief marketing officer, the company can offer you 80,000 drink options, 80,000 options for your coffee. There may be 80,000 options to satisfy your need for coffee, 
But there is only one option to satisfy your need for forgiveness. Peter said in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That name is Jesus. The whole Old Testament, the whole Bible speaks of it. God's written word is the revelation of the living word. He appears on every page. It's a joyous discovery to find him there every day. This word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, John said, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This living word is our king, our priest, and our sacrifice. This living word is establishing his kingdom. First and second Samuel has been all about the king and the rise of his kingdom. The kings that came through David's line had many names, but they all led to the one who has the name above every name. And just as God established David's throne, so too he promised to establish the throne of great David's greater son, Jesus. That's why God told Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Regalia, it's all about the rise of his kingdom. And when Jesus comes again, when he takes his seat on David's throne, everything that God has promised will come true. He will reign as king of kings and lord of lords. He will reign with justice and righteousness. And his kingdom will never end. I can hardly wait for his coming. He came before. He's coming again. We're looking forward to it as God's people. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, for this Christmas season that reminds us that not only have you come, but you're coming again. You're coming again not to die on, a, on an altar. You're coming to reign on a throne. And I thank you, God, for who you are. I thank you for all you have paid for my forgiveness, for our forgiveness. And I thank you that you are still offering life to those who by faith will receive it. For there are not 80,000 options. There's only one. And it's you, Jesus. You're the only one. That's why today, while your heads are bowed and your spirit of prayer, I just want to ask you, do you have this living Jesus living in you? Do you know that you're a sinner today and that God loves you very much? Do you know you need forgiveness from God or you'll be separated from him forever? Do you know that God so loved you that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life? Do you believe today that Jesus is your burnt offering, that he is your fellowship offering, wholly devoted to God, making peace between God and man? If you're here today and you know you're a sinner like the rest of us, 
And you now understand why Jesus went to the altar of a cross on a hill outside the city to die there for the sins of the world, your sins. And you realize that at that moment, your debt was paid. God absorbed the cost. And he was buried in a tomb, but three days later, he rose again victorious. If you believe he's alive today, then ask him to save you. And he will. For by grace, we are saved through faith in this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Like every gift, fully paid for, it must be received. So you can say to him right now, in the quietness of your heart, you just pray to him. He knows the cry of salvation. He heard David's cry, and he'll hear yours. You just say to him right now, Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. And I believe that my sin is what separates me from you. I believe you love me. And that's why you came to die for me in my place, for my sin on that cross. And when you died, I believe my full payment was made. And you were taken down and buried in a tomb. But the grave couldn't hold you. I believe that three days later you rose again victorious, just as you promised that you conquered sin, death, and the grave for me, and you're alive. And so, Lord Jesus, I ask you, please, come and live in me. Wash away all of my sins and forgive me. Grant to me that gift of life purchased on your altar. Teach me to follow you all of my days. And I will thank you for so great a gift. While we're still in a spirit of prayer, if you prayed that today, I want you to know Christ heard you and he's come into your life. He applies that payment. Your sin is forgiven. You're brought into relationship with God. You have peace with him. You have fellowship with God. If that's you today, I'd love for you to come down here after the service and join us in the prayer room. We've got a little material to give you. We'd love you to take home. We want to encourage you in this new relationship with God. And for the rest of us, maybe we've known the Lord for a while. But could we say that we are living, wholly devoted to him like a burnt offering? Could we say that we are walking in the light as he is in the light, having fellowship with God? Or are there some things today perhaps we need to confess or get right? Or maybe you just want to say thank you to God. But just take a moment to acknowledge to him that he is your Savior and Lord and you want to live for him, holding nothing back. Jesus, this is why you came to establish your kingdom in the hearts of those who believe. Someday you're coming again. You're gonna take your seat on that throne, David's throne. And you're gonna reign in justice and righteousness forever and ever. God, would you help us to live not just in this Christmas season, but every season with the glorious wonder and joy that we are right with God. 
that we have fellowship with God, peace with God, because you are willing to die on the altar of the king. Thank you for being our king. Thank you for being our priest. Thank you for being our sacrifice. May you be honored by our worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.